The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Uh, let's go to God's Word. We've been, we just started um, our teaching series through the book of 1 Samuel, and uh, God has so much to teach us, so much to show us of His love for us and His plans in our life. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 2. If you want to follow along with our teaching this morning, um, we're going to read chapter 2, uh, verse 1 through 10. Let's approach God's word with reverence and awe. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king, and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is God's word. At the center of the opening chapters of 1 Samuel, which we introduced last week, we are invited into this private grief of a woman named Hannah. We've seen how God used the ridicule of others, even in her own family, uh, the the, the ineffective pity of her husband, and even the own pain of her own infertility to drive her into prayer and to drive her into the arms of God who cares for her. Hannah prays for a child and God gives her a child and she names him Samuel. And this story is not told to illustrate to you and I ordinary life. What do I mean is that the message is not that every childless woman who prays will be given a child. Not everyone who is sick will be healed. We know that he does not always give us what we ask for. And so why why even tell us this story? I mean, what is the purpose of this amazing story for a woman who did not have children, prays for a child, God gives her a child? Is it just to kind kind of rub salt into the wounds of those who are struggling and God has not yet answered our prayers? Uh, It's it's not just a cruel story that tries to get our hopes up. It's something much bigger than that. The story is told to point us to something bigger. Not merely a song or a prayer about what God has done for Hannah personally. It is a story of what God will do for all his people. It's a story about God. It's a story, it's God's story. It's a story of humanity. The way that God helped Hannah is like a scale model demonstration of how God works in the world, how he typically works in your and my life, and how God works in his in the fullness of his kingdom when it comes 
perfectly. And so her song is a story of how God works in our lives. I'm always fascinated by those 3D model models of like buildings. Have you seen these? You know what I'm talking about? These 3D scaled models of these buildings. And it, what it's attempting to do is to show uh, the vision of the architects and the engineers and the designers of this building uh, to put it in a tangible way for us to see uh, what it will look like. Uh, they even have the trees in there and everything and the bushes of where it's going to go and even little people of where, they, where they'll move around and walk. Uh, Hannah sees her own story, her own blessing and relief that has come to her as a sample for how God works for all of us. The Christian life, if we're being honest, is really hard at times. It's difficult, and it's not only just difficult, it can be very frustrating. The righteous things we want to do, we have a really hard time doing. The wicked things that we, don't, that we want to stop doing, it seems that we keep doing those things. Uh, people do things to us that don't seem to fit God's plan for providing for the ones He loves and caring for the ones He loves. And we say things like, God, if you're a caring God or a loving God, then why are these things that, that are so hard happening to me and to our world? Wouldn't it be wonderful in the midst of the daily grind of following Jesus uh, to know how God is working in the midst of all those trials and to be shown a typical way of how God is working in the midst of that suffering, in the midst of the wickedness of others, in the midst of, of things that seem like God has just checked out? I would love that. Um, Hannah's story among many other stories in Scripture, show us exactly that. It is not a story of ordinary life for us. Um, it is a story of how God works. Um, this song shows us three of God's tendencies, how He works in our life and in the world. Um, those, those, those three things were introduced briefly last week, but today we'll flesh them out much more in detail. And those are, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble that God is working in the midst of our struggles despite human wickedness, and that God will raise up a Savior who will lead His people to salvation. These are great themes. It's a theme of 1 Samuel, and it's a theme of how God will work in our lives and what He desires from those who want to follow Him. And so let's dig into these things. First, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Hannah's song starts out with the word my, and she repeats that three times. Uh, to express her gratitude for God for what he has done. So Hannah's making it very personal at first. She's saying, God, thank you for what you have done for me. You have, you have satisfied me. You have brought relief. Uh, you have answered my prayers. And then it quickly turns from my to focus on all people for all time. The song is filled with reversals. Do you see that? If you want to look at that, those passages again, it's filled with reversals. The strong will be weak. The weak will be made strong, the full will be hungry, the hungry will be satisfied, the poor will be rich, the rich will be made poor, and on and on it goes. And though these phrases are used to describe physical positions like low and high and exalted and lifted up, uh, they are used much more importantly in a figurative sense. God's, God alone is able to revive a heart that is struggled and lowly and downcast. God alone is able to humble the proud and those who are self-reliant. And it's all through the Bible. It's how God normally works in the world, that He brings low the proud and self-justifying, that those who think that they do not need God, that they are fine on their own. We see all throughout Scripture that God, God brings them low. He humbles them. And those that are broken, and in their brokenness, and in their, their acknowledging of their own need, turn to God for help, we see that God, all throughout the Bible, He loves to lift them up. 
He loves to honor them. He loves to exalt them. He loves to bless them in many different ways. And so it may be said that wherever we are, wherever you are at any given moment, God, we can expect that God will flip us. Where are you today? If we are proud and filled with myths of our own self-sufficiency, that we're good and we're good, we don't need God, and we can handle things on our own, we can expect in time that God will humble us. He'll bring something into our life, even through the acknowledgement of our own sin, or even through external things that we cannot control that will humble us, that will bring us low, that will cause us to stop and to see ourselves as we really are, as creatures, creatures, and seeing God as creator who is not like us. But where are you? Maybe you're somewhere else. If you are humble, if you are broken, if you are hurting, if you're weak, if you're out of energy, and you willingly humble yourself under God and ask him for help, you can expect that he will strengthen you, that he will provide for you, that he will comfort you, that he will restore you. There's a, there's a rule in Arizona regarding termites. You know what it is? You, yeah, you either have it or you're going to have it, right? I don't know why they say that. I've never had it. So I don't know what that means. Uh, there's also a rule that is true regarding the relationship between creation, that's us, and creator. We will either willingly place ourselves in a place of submission before God, or he will put us there. These are the two options. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, every eye will be opened to see the truth of who God is. And when that time comes, we will be brought low. We will not feel proud. We will not feel encouraged by what we've accomplished. We will not feel justified in our record. We will all feel humbled. And so God is saying, you can willingly place yourself under my grace and mercy, submitting yourself to my kingship in your life, or I will put you there eventually. Regretting, uh, what, is, what is humility? Some think that humility is the result of regretting sin. Right? Let me explain that. It's, we sin, we realize what we did was very wrong, we feel very sorry about it, and we regret it, and we have been humbled. That's one way that we are humbled, right? We, we messed up. And we say we're sorry. And that attitude of the heart is one of humility. It's, it's lowliness. We realize that uh, we, we regret what we have done. Um, regretting our sin is one way to make us humble. But God's word says there's a far greater way to make us humble and one that we should pursue more regularly. And that is not sin driving us to humility, but it's rather looking upon the grace of God that makes us humble. Not our regret over sin, but our joy in the grace of God, in what he has done for us, makes us humble. Hannah says in verse 2 to 3, there's, there's none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There's no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, but the, for the Lord is a God of knowledge. By him actions are weighed. God knows, but God is, God is good. He's a rock. He's a strength. There's none like him. Don't act so proud. Instead of waiting for him to humble you through the, just the natural course of your life and sin, willingly look at what he has done. Look at his grace and his love for you and, and let the joy of, of your life flow out of that. Humble yourself in the midst of that. 
When, when God created the universe, it was for the single purpose of making his creation partakers in his blessing, for us to know who he was, a partaker in relationship with God. God created everything there is, all things seen and unseen, so that we can enjoy him. So his glory would be known and manifested in the world, and in enjoying that, we would, we would enjoy him. God wished to reveal himself in his glory and love and wisdom. There's no one glorious like God. There's no one loving like God. There's no one good like God. And therefore, a relationship between us and God could only be one of absolute and unceasing dependency on God. The only relationship we are to have with God is one of, God, you are creator, and I am your creation, and I, and I am in need of you every moment. There is never a moment where I can stand on my own character, my own strength. Hannah's saying, when you, when you think about God, don't act so smart. I love how she says this. Don't act so proudly. Talk no more so very proudly, she says. For if it was by the power of God that all things came into existence, then it's the power of God that maintains every moment in your life. The air that you breathe, the motions that you make, the decisions that you make, everything in your life that you experience is only based on the maintenance of God's power in your life. Don't act like there are compartments of your life that are yours and under your control, and then there's other things that are under God's control, religious things that he cares about. Everything is his. Among those who earnestly desire to follow Jesus Humility ought to be the mark of our sincere faith. Humility is the result of accurately acknowledging our place before God as dependent creatures, needing His mercy. If you were to picture in your mind, just think of, think of that mature Christian. Think of what does is what is a righteous Christian look like who is mature in his or her faith? What qualities come to mind? Humility should be evidence of real holiness. But that's not often what we admire in other people. If you were to look at the, those Christians that you admire, you might have other qualities that might even be more on top of the list than humility. We admire eloquence and generosity and accomplishments. We admire spiritual activity. We admire a lot of outward-focused prayer and uh, participation in the things that the church does and, and giving. We might want to see a really good track record of faithfulness uh, and just being a, humble, a good servant. Humility ought to be the chief mark of our holiness. Humility ought to be the thing that we demonstrate most of our sincere faith and love and trust in God. Why, why does humility seem to be so undervalued in the church? I believe it really is. It's not something we look for primarily in leaders. It's not something we ask our uh, members and followers of Jesus to exhibit uh, with enough energy as we should. Why is that? And I think it's because, well, because in humility, there's nothing that we're actually bringing to God. As Christians, we like to invest in things where we are actually giving something to God. Here's the actions I'm doing. Here's the activity I'm doing. Here are the gifts that I'm giving. Here's the time I'm putting in. So these are a demonstration of my righteousness, all that I give. But when God says the chief virtue is, is humility, well, we think, well, I'm not giving anything. I'm not acting. I'm not giving anything to you. That's kind of pointless, isn't it? doesn't make me look good. There's no return, personally, on that. I don't get any praise for being humble. I get forgotten. 
And so it shows us that we maybe have things upside down. Here's a quote that I really appreciated from a book that I've been reading called Humility. And it's from Andrew Murray. It says, Humility is the place of entire dependence on God. It's the first duty of every creature and the root of every virtue. And so pride or the loss of this humility is the root of every sin and evil. It was when the serpent breathed the poison of his pride, the desire to be as God, into the hearts of Adam and Eve that they too fell from their high position into all the wretchedness in which man is now sunk. In heaven and earth, pride, self-exaltation is the gate and the birth and the curse of hell. Entire dependency on God. That's humility. Entire dependency on God. It is our humility that leaves God free to be everything to us. Hannah tells us where our hope is for the future. In verse 9, she says, For not by might shall a man prevail. The only way to face the future is to stay low and surrender to him with no strings attached, to bow down before the Lord, to give him thanks humbly, to confess our sins earnestly and honestly, to monitor our own hearts constantly for that temptation towards self-exaltation. The only way to live and to actually live into the future with great hope and confidence is to stay low, to monitor our hearts, to, to ask ourselves and to ask God, is there anything in my heart, search my heart for any temptation or any inclination to self-exaltation, where I look at myself and say, well, I'm good. God has helped me and now I'm good on my own. Or yet there are still things in my life that I can still uh, be of great value towards my own righteousness and salvation. If you were to monitor your own heart today and just take a look through the window into your heart, where would your confidence be? Hannah says, it, it, is, not, it is not by might that we prevail. It's not by our own might. We, we don't succeed. We don't win. We, we do not grow in righteousness. We do not find favor or acceptance with God by anything that we are doing so if you were to monitor your own heart, where would your confidence be? Would it be in your own might, in your own accomplishments, in your own success? In what areas particularly would you be prone to be tempted the most to put your confidence in your own character and strength and ability? Or would your confidence be in the Lord? Total dependency on His power, on His intervention and His love in his wisdom, in his guidance and maintenance of your life. This kind of staying low is not a thing that comes naturally to us. I admit that. And so if you are feeling that it's just a struggle to do that, wow, it's really hard just to always stay in that place, you're not alone. It is not a thing that comes naturally to us. So we must make it an object of our special desire. We must make it, in a sense, a job of ours, a a chore of ours, a pursuit, a, an object of special desire, a prize in which we run after because it does not come naturally to us. We must make it an object of our special desire through our prayer and through our faith and extending our face to Christ and seeing what he has done to us, straining forward and with all of our energy, crying out for help. God, help me to make humility and dependency on you 
special desire in my life. There's nothing as natural to humans as pride and nothing as unnatural to humans as humility. The hardest thing is that which God seeks. The easiest thing is the way that we are, we are born into this world into sin. We are born, we are born dead in sin where our only inclination is to exalt ourselves. We see it, we see it in our own pride, we see it in our own uh, boasting, in our own accomplishments, we see it in our own selfishness. Think about it, what makes, just think of these two things. What makes you angry? What makes you afraid? If you think about those things, you will realize, wow, my whole life is focused on my comfort, my accomplishments, how I've ordered things, and anything that infringes on those things, I just can't handle it. We seem to be very good at ordering our whole lives around ourselves. God seeks those who willingly place themselves under God's dependency, submitting ourselves to Him. It is only then, when we are, when we are broken down in our sense of pride and dependent on God, that His life is most manifested in us. And so Hannah looks at this, and she sees how God has acted in her own life, and she acknowledges, God, you, you oppose the proud. Those who think they are something apart from you eventually realize that they are nothing. But those who humble themselves and those who are broken, you lift up, you raise up. And so she desires to be that. She makes it a, an object of her special desire. She, and God's word calls us to the same. That we would be people whose chief virtue, our chief uh, manifestation of, of our holiness would not be in our spiritual activity, but in God's, in our humility, in our acknowledgement of our need for Him. Second, Hannah moves on and, and she says this, God is working in ways we don't understand despite human wickedness. God has a way of working in us and working in the world that is different than we might expect. I'll just put it in plain terms. God does things in ways that we don't understand, that we don't, can't predict, and that don't always seem reasonable to us. Hannah might summarize this point like this if she were speaking to us today. You cannot possibly know the full scope of what God is doing in the midst of your suffering. Don't try to predict his motives. Just trust him. You cannot in any moment look at your life and what is happening and say, I know exactly what God is doing. I know exactly what he will do in this brokenness and how he will make it right. We cannot know. Hannah, on the opposite side of her suffering, now this hindsight's 2020. she's looking back, she saw that God used her prayers, God used her tears, God used years, literally years and years of repeated anxiety and barrenness as a means of bringing about his promised salvation for all of God's people. She saw, wow, this wasn't just a, a relief for me. You were using all of those years of pain for what you were going to accomplish for all of your people forever. To bring about your plans for all of eternity, you had to do that with me. I would have never thought that. I just thought that I was being ridiculed. I thought I was just being alienated. I thought that sometimes for people, life is just really hard, and I'll ask you for help. I never would have thought that you would have used what you were doing with me to bring about your plans of salvation for all your people. She's so thankful. She says, there's none like you, God. We have no way of fully predicting how he will act, not even based on how he has acted before. For instance, let me, let me just give you a, 
here, here's kind of the reason, the reasoning of God and how He works. Um, what's the opposite of up? Actually, the answer is purple. Um, what, what's, what's, what month comes after January? No, the answer is beach ball. So, what goes best with peanut butter? And everybody knows it's honey. I mean, everybody knows it's honey. Okay, so, see, what, what is this nonsense? Nothing makes sense. A jelly, jelly is a fine answer. Uh, nothing makes sense in this. Hannah's saying, this is what you do. First, she says, don't act so smart when you're around God. The, the mighty ones, the warriors, their bows are going to be broken. The, the ones who are never hungry, they're going to be starving. The ones who have never had food are going to be full. The, the rich are going to be made poor. The poor are going to be made princes. You don't know what God's doing. The only verse in this entire prayer that makes sense is verse 5. The barren has born seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. She says, people that have a lot of kids are tired. That's the only thing that makes sense in this entire passage. <laughs> she says, this thing I do know. You're going to have a lot of kids. You're going to be tired. Everything else is nonsense. Everything else is so strange. Everything else is just reversed. You don't know how God is working. Nothing in these verses makes sense. Don't act so smart. You don't know what God is doing. There is none like him. That includes you. You are not like God. Your best intelligence, your best reasoning, your best wisdom is still his worst. And that may seem scary. It may seem scary that there's so much unpredictable, like your wisdom is not his, and he works in mysterious ways, and that's scary. It's like, well, that, that really terrifies me, actually. I wish I could put him in a box. I wish I could predict. I wish I knew what he was doing. But there's comfort here, even in the midst of this confusion. And she says, even though all those things are true, I want you to know something else like God. There's no rock like God either. There's no confidence like God. There's no security like God. There's no treasure like God. There is nothing as sure and right and just and good as God. And so on one side, you might feel very scared to follow a God who does things that we cannot fully understand. But we should also know we follow a God who is better than anything else we'll ever experience. He's strong. He is right. He is just. He is so good. And as we rest our life on him, it is like resting on a rock that is immovable. What's the alternative? You trust in a God who you don't fully understand, or you trust in yourself, which you, who you have let yourself down every single time. You are not a rock. Your emotions are not constant. Your track record is full of weakness and, and failure. Your judgment is lacking. Your wisdom is empty at times. Your emotions are confusing. What's the alternative? It's just to keep doing what you've been doing with the same results and still being in need. And God says, trust in me. My track record is good. It's sure. It's perfect. That makes us humble. We say, okay, well, I feel hopeless. I feel out of control. He says, now I can do something with you. Now you're exactly where I need you. So God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. He's working in ways that we cannot understand. And finally, God will raise up a king to lead his people. 
God will do everything he said that he will do. Hannah finishes her song with a grand finale. I hope you see how epic this is. The Lord will do all that he has promised. Hannah's story is understandably told as a comfort to many women, as it highlights a very private grief and painful struggle for many women. However, this is not only a story for women. I don't want you to see Hannah as a sad victim. I don't want you to see her as a sad victim. I want you to see her as a powerful victor. I want you to see her as one who has lifted her head to the light of God's triumph over death and over sin and over struggle forever. She says, my heart exalts, my horn is exalted. This is like very animal warrior language. Think of a rhino that has charged its enemy and impales his enemy and lifts his bloody horn and lets out a cry of triumph. Are you with me on that? I told you it's not just for women. That's what she is doing. She is not sitting alone and eating and crying and saying, thank you, God, for looking on me. I'm just nothing. She is saying, yes, look at what God has done. I was weak. I was low. I was ridiculed, and God helped me. God saved me, and God will do everything he has promised to do. I lift my bloody horn and see God in victory. One of the most epic scenes in cinema was the fight scene, in my opinion, the fight scene between King Kong and the two T-Rexes <laughs> in, uh, in the 2005 movie by you know, Peter Jackson. He was the director of Lord of the Rings, and he wrote and directed this new King Kong movie. There's a scene where King Kong is fighting two T-Rexes, uh, and one of the T-Rex goes and, and uh, charges after him, and he takes his hand, the King Kong, right, one hand on each jaw, and rips, pulls his jaw open, and the T-Rex sticks out his tongue, and King Kong bites the tongue and spits it out, and then breaks his head and breaks his jaw. I'm not done yet, people. And, and he, he takes his mandible, and he shoves it into his skull, and then the T-Rex is laying on the ground, and then that iconic... King Kong, you know, you all know this, and then he, he stands on the T-Rex with one, and you know what's coming, right? He brings up his head, his chest is puffs out, and he bangs his chest, and, and he screams loud, and birds fly off, and deer run off into the distance. I've got a picture. Um, and so, right, so, <laughs> standing over in triumph. That's me in the corner, that girl down there. Like, <laughs> please don't help me. Can you see this? I, this is a picture of Hannah. Do not see her as a sad victim. This is what she is doing. And yet she's not the one. She's recognized she is not the one who has triumphed over her, her suffering. She sees God in triumph, and she is enjoying that salvation as if she was the one who accomplished it. She's humble. She's excited. She's celebrating. She is overjoyed. All right, you can change it <laughs> before I tell you what happens after that. Up and down, down and up. These reversals, we don't know how God is working. Hannah's hope is ultimately God 
in raising up her, his anointed. She says, you will raise up your king. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalts the horn of his, his exaltation. I raise my horn in triumph because you have promised to raise up your king who will lead us, conquer our enemy, and bring salvation to all of your people. What do I have to be afraid of? And when that king's king comes, he will he'll turn the world upside down. Just like these reversals, and remember this is a 3D model of how God works in our life. Hannah is talking about herself, but she's talking about how God works with all of us. Don't act so smart. God's going to reverse. Wherever you are, he's going to flip it. And when God's king comes, he will, king comes, sounds like King Kong, doesn't it? <clears throat> See, it's just so many similarities. When he comes, he's going to turn the world upside down. And wherever you are, he's going to flip you. He will not come in strength, he'll come in humility. He will not ride in on a horse, a war, a war horse, he will ride in on a donkey. And he will be put to death. He will take your place. He will take the sinner's place. He will be humbled. He'll be humiliated. He will be broken. His body will be broken. His blood will be poured out. And he will die. But he will triumph over death. He will triumph over sin. Down will be up and up will be down. The lame will walk. The blind will see. The proud will be crushed. And the dead will rise. That's how we know that God's king has come to us. We know the passage, it's, it's common in Philippians 2, verse 8. It talks about this king. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that as the, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." Christ's humility, his humiliation and exaltation is our salvation. Him not seeing his own glory as something to be grasped, his self-sufficiency, his self-centered pursuit of life is not our salvation, but rather his, his atonement, his sacrifice, his humility manifested as he became a man humiliated and, and the humiliation of Christ as he becomes like us, susceptible to sickness and despair and hunger and thirst and weariness and pain, even death itself. Christ truly died. He did not survive his execution. And he was faithful. He willingly submitted himself to the will of the Father. So God exalted him and lifted him up, and gave him the name above every name. And by that name, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. We willingly look at Christ as our king, and we willingly submit ourselves to his rule in our life, or God will do it for us. We have the joy, we have the privilege, we have the peace in doing that now. In a time in our culture, where personal freedom and living out our life as we see fit is one of the most popular values. You have much to lose as you willingly place yourself under the submission of God. The idea that we would follow Jesus as our king and our life is not our own but belongs to him 
and actually doing what he says is the most absurd thing that this culture will tell you to do. The culture will say, you should follow your heart. You should follow your plans and don't let anyone get in the way of what you want to do. But you need to know, because Jesus has come, he turns the world upside down. That wisdom of the world will soon be seen for what it really is, foolishness. We will all see clearly the wisdom of the world and how fruitless it will be. And what seems so fruitless right now, which is giving up your life so that you can follow and love Jesus, Christ will exalt you. You will share in his glory. We will not enjoy the benefits of Christ exalted in our lives until we make him our everything. Until we count our very lives and everything in it as nothing, will Christ be our everything. Let's pray.